Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Business of Customer Love podcast, brought to you by Mention Me. I'm your host, Simeon Atkins, and thanks for joining us today. Growing your brand through customer love might seem like an idea that belongs in the company cafe rather than the boardroom. But identifying, growing, and activating a base of loyal fans is serious business, and the results of harnessing customer advocacy can be truly transformational for both your company and your customers. We gather experts from across the space to shine a light on how you can unleash a virtuous cycle of sustainable organic growth where your best customers keep coming back and bringing their friends too. So let's get into today's episode. So I'm excited to be joined today by Jim Tincher, best-selling author and founder of Heart of the Customer. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. So you're here today to talk about how brands can better understand the motivations behind what turns customers into loyal advocates and then strategies they can implement to turn these advocates into a sustainable growth driver. Before we dive in, though, do you want to give a quick introduction to our listeners? Sure. Uh, Heart of the Customer started about 10 years ago and really came out of probably some frustration I had when I had my first customer experience role. And the organization was so focused on product and internal thinking we led the nation in sales. We also led the nation in customer churn. And when you combine those two, that means we were losing something on the lines of 50,000 customers a year. And uh, just looking at how avoidable that was and how can you really get your organization to start customer first. Great products are fantastic and they're necessary. But if you combine great products with poor customer experience, you're always bringing on new customers to replace the ones going out the back door. And that's what really motivated me to start this company around helping organizations understand what are the best practices and not just growing, but growing organically through keeping your customers and growing those relationships. Very interesting. And I'm sure we'll dive into a little bit more of that as we get into the content. Um, Now, as traditional on the show, to get things kicked off, I'd love for you to share a time recently where as a consumer, you experienced customer love firsthand and what impact that had on you as a consumer. Sure. <clears throat> a couple of years ago, I was at the Minnesota Barbecue Association Spring Training, which is a handful. But yes, I'm part of the Minnesota Barbecue Association. I, I love it there. And they have a spring training where they bring in experts. It's at the Food Sciences Program at the University of Minnesota. And I ran across Meathead. Uh, Meathead is a cookbook author, and uh, he gave this wonderful presentation. And The reason I love Meathead's brand so much is he does the same thing to barbecue that we try to do in customer experience, which is to bust all the myths that are out there using science. And so one of the examples he had for anybody who's a barbecue fan out there, a lot of cookbooks tell you to take the meat out and let it rest for a half hour or an hour before you put it on the smoker. He did the research to show that when you do that warm meat, doesn't collect smoke as well as cold meat does. So you're actually better off leaving the meat in the fridge until the moment you need to put it on the smoker. You know, a little example of bringing science where he tried different materials that were cold and warm and look at the smoke collection and applying that to myths on how to do barbecuing. Um, And that spoke a lot to me because we spent a lot of time breaking myths in customer experience. 
it's uh it's interesting a guest i had on the other day was talking about uh texas barbecues um and a company oh. that was kind of helping him with that as well so barbecues are uh, fast becoming a theme on this podcast i'm not sure if it's because of the time of year or not um yeah so Very yeah well, um yeah it is that time of year i'm actually having some friends over tonight i will be making the beans from meathead's uh cookbook which are phenomenal highly recommend them and uh, but it is getting to be that time of year, at least in Minnesota, where we are starting to fire up the smokers. Excellent. OK, let's get kicked off. So um, this term customer love um, means different things to different people. And, sure. and as someone who's founded a company to help businesses better embrace customer love um, and obviously off the back of that reduced churn, keep more loyal, happy customers. I'd be interested to hear, Jim, what is customer love in your view all about? Customer love is creating a relationship, an emotional relationship with customers so that they want to spend more with you, stay longer, and also interact in ways that are less expensive to serve. And there's a um, bias that goes on, a confirmation bias, that when you love a brand and things go wrong, you're sure it's just a mistake. They'll do better next time. But when you don't love a brand, they do the exact same mistake. It's because they're evil, horrible people. They're out to screw you. It's the same issue that can happen, but that confirmation bias. If the company has not earned your love, your emotional connection, you react completely different to it. And that's what it's about is creating that emotional connection. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, again, that's something that comes up time and time again is this word emotional connection. Um, and we're going to go into a little bit more detail around the difference between one-off transactional relationships and and loyal customers later. I'd, I'd be interested just kind of going back to the heart of the customer, um, the kind of conversations that you're having with businesses around this. Do you find that it's primarily having uh, discussions with people that have embraced this idea already and, and just kind of need some guidance? Or is there quite a big educational piece around the importance of implementing customer love in their business? Well, it's more the latter. It's it's coming back to the warm meat versus cold meat idea, is that there's this belief out there that, that we do a lot of work in B2B, for example, manufacturing, software companies. And there's a belief that, well, consumers, yeah, they care about emotions, but apparently they leave their emotions at home. And when they come to work, they become these faceless, rational robots. And nothing could be further from the truth. Um, one of the stories I use is when we were working with Dow. And we were working on the complaints journey. Now, Dow, of course, the global chemical company. And when I met Dan Futter, who's now the chief commercial officer, he told me, Jim, my goal is to create a complaints journey that's enjoyable. And you can imagine that night we're all together, enjoyable complaints journey. Hey, that's funny. But Dan is the data. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the effortless experience. And coming back to myth busting, what most people don't understand is that research behind that is all based on the contact center, which is a unique need. But if we look across what the broader research shows, it shows that if you want to create true loyalty, and that's a behavior, again, where customers want to buy more, they want to stay longer. And they want to interact in ways that are actually less expensive for both of you. That begins with an emotional connection. And they measure effectiveness, ease, and enjoyability. And Dan can show you that when enjoyability goes up, true loyalty happens. And so we worked with them to create an enjoyable complaints journey. 
something that I, if he hadn't pushed me, I don't think I would, ever would have gotten there on my own. That's so interesting. I think if you can make a complaints journey uh, enjoyable, then you can pretty much do anything in your business. Um, exactly. And, and you are right. There's this interesting concept of um, people that kind of work within B2B, all of a sudden they're not buying from an emotional standpoint. They suddenly change and they're not consumers anymore. Um, and obviously we know that's not the case. Um, so just building on that, um, from the experiences you've had working with businesses, why is it so important for them to be able to identify and nurture their biggest fans? And what kind of impact have you seen that having on their business? Well, it's critical for many reasons. First of all, organic growth only happens when you engage your customers. Many brands, going back to my early example, have to keep finding new customers to replace those going out the back door. That's not sustainable. We all know, or at least we should know the research, that it's easier to service an existing customer, less expensive than to bring a new one. But actually, um, work in the, um, the American Marketing Association posted some research that shows that when you do a better job of creating engagement with your customers, your cost of sale goes down for new customers. Because you have customers who are willing to stand up, to talk about you, to refer you, they're also far more willing to be a reference. We do a lot of work in software companies, for example, and finding referenceable customers is hard because it's a lot of work. Now, people might want to come spend a couple of days at your site learning how you're using your software. They want to talk to you in depth so they can understand how it's working for you. The only way you win those referenceable customers is by creating customer love, by creating that emotional engagement so that they see it not as a burden, but it's something they're happy to do because they see how your software changed their business and they want others to have the same outcome. Simply put, when you create an emotional connection with your customers, they're going to, first of all, call you first, which drives growth. If they have a need, you're going to be the first one they call. And winning that right, that's priceless. Um, They're also going to forgive you when there are problems and they'll stand up for you. Roxy Strominger leads customer experience at UKG, a software company. So we're talking about software. And they found for them that customer love is represented in increased confidence. And confidence in a software company makes a big difference. And she's found that when customers are confident, not only does retention go up and cross-sell, they're actually less expensive to serve as well. Because, again, they, that confirmation bias oh, there's a problem, I must be doing it wrong. Let me go look at the manuals, figure out what it is. Whereas when somebody's not confident or worse frustrated, then they will always call and they may even call more than once just to make sure they get the answer right, which is horrible for everybody. But if you're seeing as a brand that customers are calling you a lot, high cost to serve, I would suggest the problem is not you have too many callers. The problem is you do not have enough of an emotional connection to provide that confirmation, to positively create confirmation bias so that they're willing to do self-serve. They're willing to troubleshoot problems on their own first, thus reducing your cost of sales. Most organizations start with a symptom, high calls. How do we fix that? Well, the actual cause is you haven't done a great enough job engaging customers, building that customer love. That's really interesting because I think the first thing that you probably think about when you've got more loyal advocates is the fact that they're easier to keep um, and they're less likely yeah. to go to another brand. But actually what you're saying there around the fact they're they're cheaper to serve and also you can bring down the cost of, 
acquiring new customers as well is is really really interesting um now um there are lots of different ways that that businesses obviously measure um customer happiness so things like nps for example and nps score and um and when someone identifies as a promoter that's obviously great but i'd be really interested to to hear from from your end um what are some of the motivations behind what makes people actually go on and advocate for the brand? Because it's one thing to say that you will, but another thing to actually go on and do it. Oh, yeah, there's very little correlation between the two. Um, I was uh, speaking at our conference, our Do Be To Be Better conference, and one of my friends came up afterwards. And you know, we built the world's worst chant, which is we want to create an outcome where customers want to. The first group would say, spend more. Second group would say, stay longer. Third group would say, interact in ways that are less expensive to serve. Bad, bad chant. And um, I got together with her afterwards. She said, why didn't you talk about advocating? And I said, because most brands can't track it. Um, they track what people say they're going to advocate, which is very different if they do. Uh, we worked with a bank a few years back, and they asked two questions, plus the whys in their transactional survey. Um, how likely are you to recommend us? Net Motor Score. And why? And how simple was the experience and why? Now, simplicity is not the same as emotional connection, but it's a lot closer. In a rational world, if I want to know if you're going to refer me, I will ask you, would you recommend me? And if you say yes, then you probably would. But we don't live in that rational world. And what we found is that if you look instead at the behavior, you start with the behaviors, who is actually recommending? Who is actually referring you? Then you back up and say, well, what can we learn about those people? Odds are we learned there is an emotional connection there. There is some reason for them to actually recommend you. And then why don't we ask that? In fact, I found in our research that the emotional connection is the best predictor of the behavior we care about. Retention, cross-sell, low cost to serve. And it baffles me why almost nobody measures it. Yeah, very interesting. Um, why do you think that is? Do you think it's just because it's difficult to track? They just don't know how to do it? Um, because like you said, it makes a lot of sense. Well, I think there are, first of all, well, I was going to say nobody's written a, H, a Harvard Business Review uh, case on the topic, but actually it's not true. There's been a few of them out there talking about the connection between emotions and the outcome. I think it's because emotions are seen as squishy. Likely to recommend seems very concrete. Let's look at that. And it is often correlated with those things we care about. But the challenge is it's an outcome. And you're saying the outcome of saying you're likely to recommend us should be correlated with another outcome, which is, again, buying more, recommending us, so on. And that's easy to see. And there's been a lot of buzz on it. And it's People feel a little uncomfortable going to their CFO and saying, I want to ask about happiness or love. And we want to correlate that with the outcomes. And they imagine the CFO looking at them cross-eyed saying, you want to do what? But I guarantee you, and we've seen this work, if you actually ask your customers about what emotions they feel working with you and bring in the data that shows their behaviors, you will find that emotions in the moment are correlated with the behaviors you care about. We're working with a financial services firm. We're saying, okay, of your advisors, let's look at those who are spending more with you versus spending less. 
And now let's ask them what emotions they feel. And what we're seeing is that those who are spending more with you do have these positive emotions, confidence, trust. And we didn't ask about love, but it's the same ballpark there. Um, whereas those who are spending less are more frustrated, annoyed. And so that we can actually use research, use science. You know, we're not proving smoke sticks to meat, but it's a different kind of science that we're able to show that emotions, customer love, are very predictable. We care about the reason brands don't do it, I suspect, is because it feels squishy, but it's the furthest thing from it. And I suppose just going a little bit deeper into the motivations, if I think of myself as a consumer and what would make me recommend a brand, there's obviously a number of things, but um, having confidence in the product would be one. Um, mm -hmm. As you said, having that emotional connection would certainly be a second point there as well. Um, and also the, um, I suppose the the belief that this is going to improve someone's life as well i have so much confidence in that company that i would tell my friends about it because i want to enhance and enrich their lives as well because i guess there's like an inner um desire for us to be seen as kind of helping out our, our friends and family as well right and the ultimate even beyond those is if you can create an identity so using meathead for barbecue is part of my identity it's, you know, it's when I am out, we have an annual barbecue, I have about 100 people over. And, you know, using science for cooking is part of my identity. And it's something that I associate with. Therefore, I'm going to recommend Meathead. And I do regularly. Um, we found if some of our clients, they identify with being a heart of the customer client. And they're always recommending us because it's part of their identity. That identity happens not through rational reasons not through creating an effortless experience. It starts with emotions. And if you can amp up the emotions the customer love to the point where your brand becomes part of their identity, well, that's when you win. We have uh, Taylor Swift is coming to town. Now, anybody looking at this in the video will know that I'm not really Taylor Swift's target demographic, but those who are, including some members of our company, oh, they are so excited. They are, I was talking with a, uh, our uh, head of marketing operations and she has 12th, I think 12th row tickets. And she was so excited about it because that's part of her identity. And that's, that stems from customer love. If you can get your way into being how the customers identify, which isn't easy, but takes extra effort. But if you can get there, then you are set to have a customer for life. It's interesting you bring up Taylor Swift, actually. We had a guest on the other day who um, was originally in the music industry and, and worked with Taylor Swift. And oh, she was talking and she was talking about um, Taylor's kind of mentality when it comes to her fans. She was saying, um, if I want them to care about my music, they need to care about me. And to yeah. care about me, they need to know that I care about them, which is obviously a really smart way of doing it and probably a reason why she's been able to build up such a, a loyal base of fans um and it was just interesting talking about how that can then translate into the business world it seems like two very different things but if you're a fan of something like a band or a sports team you can have that same emotional connection with a brand and how powerful would that be oh yeah well we worked at two different banks the first bank we asked for both banks we asked customers if this bank was a movie star or a movie itself, a character from a player movie, who would it be? And the first one, it was, um, you know, um, Harrison Ford, Star Wars, um, uh, Han Solo. It was you know, the swashbuckling, the hero. 
And they had this positive identity who they were. I'll never forget we worked with another bank. And one specific person really encapsulated all the findings where they said, I would say they're the uh, best supporting actor. No, wait, wait. Not best. Just a supporting actor. Whoa. Now there's a case where there is no customer love whatsoever. This is a functional relationship. And that shows up in the scope for both brands. The first brand wanted to, how do we get more share of wallet? How do we even do more with our clients? The second brand was, how do we stop the leakage? Well, the first way to stop the leakage is earn the right for your customers to love you. And the first brand had done that, done it well, and wanted ways to do it even further. The second brand was so fee-based, so transaction-based, that their customers were fleeing because there was no customer love whatsoever. Very interesting. Um, If we kind of pivot slightly um, and think from a more um, tactical and strategical point of view, um, I'd be interested from your experience to hear about how businesses can start harnessing data to create experiences that start delighting their customers and ultimately turn more of them into fans. Well, I would start with those customers where you see there must be something going right versus the customers to see there must be something going wrong. Now, that'll vary by every type of industry. In a bank, they have multiple accounts with you. They're transacting with you regularly versus maybe they only have a checking account. Um, If it's a retailer, if you can track how often they're visiting you, say through a loyalty program, those who are coming twice the average versus those who are coming at half. So start by looking at your best customers and the ones at the other end of the extreme and spend some time with it. Learn what it is they're saying, what words they're using, and what emotions are underneath that. That's when we do our journey mapping. We'll spend time with the customers, even B2B. And we'll listen to them about what do they have to say about what they're trying to get done. And then we'll bring in our client and say, how are they helping or hurting you? And those words give a real clue over the emotions you're creating and the outcomes you're creating. So start with that. Look at your best customers, your less best customers. Then what we do is we take those emotions identified and we'll build a survey. We'll ask each set of customers what kind of emotions do they have. And you'll find very different outcomes. And now start measuring that and start looking at, for example, coming back to Roxy's example, where she measures confidence, where are we activating confidence? Where are we activating frustration? And let's find the themes there so we can do more on the confidence side, the customer love, the positive, and create less frustration. So start by talking to your customers, then measure it through surveys to get an idea of what's happening. You can also use text analytics, voice analytics, other things to get there as well. And then start measuring it as you go forward so you can see where it is you're rocking it and where you're not doing so well. And to that point around best customers, um, when you're speaking to businesses, do they typically identify their best customers as their biggest spenders, the ones with like the most accounts, etc.? Or do you think there's another way of identifying it? You know, going back to this idea of advocacy, the customers that may not always be spending the most, but actually the ones that are referring a lot and bringing in new customers essentially for free. And you raise an important point. If you only look at spending, then all of your rich customers will come out as better than all of your poorer customers. And that doesn't really tell us anything except for who has more money, who has less. But you look more at other things. So if you can track advocacy, start there. If you can look at that, 
many brands can't, um, they should, or many brands that do don't tie it into this type of measurement. So look at who's actually advocating. Look at that behavior. If you can't track that, then look at those items were within their control. So maybe not pure spending, but visits. Um, look for those things that take the um, take the individual's opportunity to spend out of it and look at what they do. What are those behaviors? So obviously referring advocacy is the ultimate outcome. If you can't track that, now look for other behaviors, though, that do reflect. But never start with pure revenue. In B2B, it means your big companies are the ones that love you the most. Probably not true. In B2C, it means your big companies are those with more money. Probably not true. Your best customers look at their behaviors and use that to understand where you're doing well. Fabulous. Jim, we've covered some amazing ground today. Just in closing, um, we kind of spoke earlier about this scenario of um, trying to present a, a customer experience project um, to the C-suite and kind of getting bulked out potentially. Um, so what kind of advice can you give to customer experience teams to be able to build a powerful business case for the, the C-suite so they do invest in customer love? First thing is to get the data. Uh, it was amazing when we interviewed over 200 customer experience leaders we would ask them, if you if I were to ask you whether the customer experience is getting better or worse, how would you answer it? Almost universally, the answer was surveys. Okay. How would your CEO answer the same question? And again, the answer was typically surveys. Hmm, I don't think your CEO spends a lot of time looking at surveys, but okay. Then I would ask, how would your favorite finance person answer that same question? Okay. They gave the same answer you did, which is, uh, you know, there's no answer. And uh, you were doing it because you're a good interviewer, but they didn't have an answer. And one person finally said, well, Jim, you're assuming I know somebody from finance. Oh, you got me. Yes, I, I did make an assumption that you had met people from finance. It turns out that was a bad assumption. But an IBM study of 2021 asked CEOs, which executives will you rely on the most in the next year? And the top two answers, essentially tied, were the CFO and the COO. So for the customer experience leaders, spend time talking with them. Learn how they're talking to the CEO. You can make some assumptions. CFO is talking money. COO is talking data. So learn how to speak that language and connect what you're doing into what they're doing. If coming back to your um, argument on the customer side of creating advocacy, if you can create your CFO or your COO and get them to become an advocate, the, the CEO will be far more willing to invest. And I'd start with that. Start with the behaviors that show customer love, show that this set of customers are buying 50% more often, for example, and are calling the contact center half as often and say, okay, we can create more people like this by investing in customer love. Brilliant. Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your time. Well, I really enjoyed it. Love talking about this topic. Customer love is something we should all be spending more time creating, advocating for, and measuring. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Business of Customer Love podcast brought to you by Mention Me. I'm your host, Simeon Atkins, and thanks for joining us today. Growing your brand through customer love might seem like an idea that belongs in the company cafe rather than the boardroom. 
but identifying, growing and activating a base of loyal fans is serious business and the results of harnessing customer advocacy can be truly transformational for both your company and your customers. We gather experts from across the space to shine a light on how you can unleash a virtuous cycle of sustainable organic growth where your best customers keep coming back and bringing their friends too. So let's get into today's episode.